The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The HCC Revolution Continues, Exploring Evidence-Based Treatment Selection and Sequencing in Advanced Disease and Beyond. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NNK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everybody, and uh, thanks so much for coming. Uh, by the way, you guys are the lucky ones. There are too many meetings out there. Uh, I don't know if call them meetings. This is the meeting, so you're <laughs> in the right place. So congratulations on that, and uh, uh, we promise you a great time with that. So uh, if anything, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, uh, my name is Ghassan Abolfa, and uh, I'm actually joined by very dear colleagues and really world expert in regard to the disease, uh, Dr. Anthony Lequeri, uh Dr. Ahmed Kasib, and Dr. Stacey Stein. So what are we trying to do today? Uh, we are going to summarize uh, the current uh, clinical adv- evidence on novel and emerging immunotherapy, targeted, angiogenic, and combination-based platforms across HCC setting and patient populations. Uh, will provide guidance on individualized uh, evidence-based treatment selections and sequencing of for patients with advanced ACC over multiple lines of therapy, and will detail strategies to improve treatment delivery, tolerability, and safety management for patients with HCC receiving novel therapies. And uh, the agenda is kind of uh, pretty involved, but it's quite elaborate, uh, but at the same time quite uh, nicely choreographed. So it'll be a masterclass and a case forum session, so uh, there'll be two of those, uh, the revolutionary of uh, upfront care for HCC, extending the benefits of modern immunotherapy and targeted platforms. And then the second will be on new directions in HCC, emerging innovation in advanced intermediate and early stage disease. And of course, we'll end up by audience Q&A and of course interaction. And we definitely will welcome that and we look very much forward to it but because this is really where we kind of gather most of where we stand and what we can help with. And of course, what we can learn from you as well. So just kind of like set up the stage a little bit for us. Uh, this is the reality. That's why you're in the room. That's why we are here as well. Uh, unfortunately, the HCC uh, mortality in the United States is increasing. Uh, if anything, uh, hapsal carcinoma is one of the uh, top drivers of cancer death in the United States. And this is literally just from a few weeks ago, like in other words, this is 2022 or end of 2022. And uh, you can see clearly that, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not doing that well in regard to that disease yet. And we have a lot of obligation in that regard. It uh, no doubt uh, affects more men than women. This is a biologic thing. Still, however, the two sexes are at the same risk for developing the disease. It's not like there's less risk in the women versus men, but simply the biology will permit the opportunity for the cancer to evolve in men more than women. So across the platform, and this is a quite engaging uh, uh uh, you know, evol- evolution of the BCLC staging system, and we kind of like put it in uh, the updated way, as you know, and uh, the prognostication will come at uh, the uh, uh, important component of like very early stage disease, uh, where pretty much uh, we have a tumor that looks resectable and very small, and it could be uh, a single lesion less than equal to two centimeter, and with good liver function, what do you do? It's very simple, just take it out. 
And this is really where the potential for the uh, surgery might come into play. However, interestingly, there could be a discussion, which we kind of, you know, a little bit beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today, about if you were to transplant those patients as well. And this really at least is an example about how much the multidisciplinary approach is very important that this is. Then when you come to uh, a little bit of more advanced disease, uh, i.e. Uh, more than or single or more than two to three nodules, uh, still with good liver function, understandably here, there's one more time taking it out, resection. Radiofixation could be a standard as well, which is curative intent that has been evaluated and compared to surgery and with the same outcome. On the other hand, the transplant component come into play here based on which criteria you would follow. Admittedly, this is not really where our kind of, you know, involvement in this medical oncologist will come to play. But interestingly, it's very important for us to be there to kind of, you know, better understand what our colleagues are trying to evolve in regard to the disease, because ultimately we'll be on the care of a patient, sadly, because of the still high recurrence of the disease after resection, after RFA, even sadly after transplant. Then we come to that big category you see it in the middle, which is like category B, which is the intermediate stage. Now, this is evolving quite a bit. And as you can see, you have uh, quite a bit of different approaches. The classic one has been to locally advanced disease to treat with local therapy. The advantage of the liver because of the dual blood supply, you can apply a certain embolization, in other words, cutting the blood supply for the tumor itself, which is dependent on the arterial blood supply, and depend for the flow of the blood in the liver on the venous uh, uh, supply. Uh, this chemo embolization evolved quite a bit. Now we have a little bit of better read where things might be applicable and maybe might not. At the same time, the downstation component come to play for the transplant. And on the other hand, you can see to the right the question mark of systemic therapy for local disease. And we're going to talk about that too. Then we have a little bit of more straightforward issue, which is in regard to advanced disease with vascular invasion or systemic uh, uh, disease. And there were systemic therapy come to play, as we're going to spend most of our time today. And then, sadly, patients can have with quite advanced liver dysfunction enough that best supportive care will be the appropriate approach in that setting. So how come are we here today? Uh, I can tell you jokingly, like 20 years ago, if you walk at ASCO or GI ASCO and you say, I do liver cancer, uh, the next question is, oh, great weather today. And uh, there was nothing to talk about. Uh, but look where we are. This is really a great thanks to especially the patients who really contributed and to their loved ones in regard to all those studies. Big thanks for all the investigators who really spent quite a bit of time in the last two decades in regard to that disease. And of course, a big thanks for all the support that we got from all the sponsors of those studies per se. And as you can see, all the way back to 2007, uh, we had sorafenib. And you remember that very well. This was the only therapy that was available. And then we had a long hiatus, not much going on. It's not like we're doing nothing, but uh, if anything, we really try to understand the disease better. And then 10 years later, we have the advancement of rigorafenib as a second-line therapy. In the same year, nivolumab as a checkpoint inhibitor anti-PD-1 came into play in second line. Then after that, we jump on another uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, the lymvatinib came into play. 
After that, we have in the same year, 2018, pembrolizumab in second-line therapy. Then from that point, it carried on very quickly. Cabozantinib in 2019, ramisurumab in second-line also in 2019, atezolizumab plus bevizumab in first-line in 2020, nivolumab, pipilumab in second-line in same year. Then we took hiatus in 2021. 2022, we have the dervolumab, terminumab, the stride based on the Himalaya study. So clearly, it's quite fascinating to see how much we evolved from literally nothing before 2007, one drug in 2007, and now, as you see, we are pretty busy. And this is would, if anything, need an important reflective moment like what we're doing today to understand how to treat patients best. And this is really a little bit of a more advanced uh, algorithm of the BCLC I just showed you a second ago. And as you can see over here, uh, within the same context of what we're talking about, uh, there is especially the advancements of uh, the uh, BCLCC, where the systemic therapy apply. And as you can see, if you were to focus on that red uh, box, atezolizumab plus bevacizumab, dervolumab plus trimlumab, in regard to combination therapy in first line, Limvatinib and sorafenib in the first line. Dervolumab, a single agent in the first line as well. And then in the second line, you have rigorafenib with prior exposure to sorafenib. You have cabozantinib. You have remisurumab with a requirement for AFP more than 400. And if anything, also you have pembrolizumab. And there's also some discussion about at least conditional still uh, positioning of the nifolumab, ipilumab. And then third line, there's only one drug already still approved is the cabozantinib itself. We're going to talk about those and we're going to dissect them a little bit in more details as we go through all the presentations. So, if anything, uh, the important component to remember that still we need more work to be done. Uh, we should not be satisfying ourselves because if anything, it really... Uh, took quite a bit of time until we evolved to where we are. And if anything, we can see here that uh, after the almost decade plus, after the sharp trial, the older tyrosine kinase receptor remains still widely used in advanced ACC. In other words, as much as we talk about all the fancy stuff, there was a study that was, as you can see here, 284 uh, advanced ACC patients, almost all received first-line tyrosine kinase receptor, most commonly sorafenib. So in other words, as if all the information that we have either is not accessible or not being aware, uh, th there's no awareness into it or even understanding of it. And interestingly, there's also a concern that patients might go untreated. And if anything, we can see here that in another study, 506 patients with advanced ACC, 44% received no active first-line therapy at all. And of those, who did receive the first-line therapy, 37% of them did not even receive second-line therapy. So you see how much opportunities there is here to help patients to really evolve that disease. And ultimately, in regard to the intermediate stage, the cancer registry uh, and health claims data, in 215 patients with intermediate and advanced ACC, 46% received no active treatment at all in regard to what could be systemic or, or correction, uh, local, local advanced uh, uh, intermediate uh, or locally ad, uh, applicable therapy per se. 
So as you see, we have big challenges over here. Uh, I think we all understand in regard to provide the access to therapy for everybody. We have a lot of work to do. So if anything, one more time, I can't thank you enough for being here on behalf of all three of us, uh, or for all four of us. I exclude myself here. And if anything, when I come on with the first masterclass one, the revolution of the upfront care in HCC, extending the benefits of modern immunotherapy and target platforms. And our first speaker is my very dear colleague, Dr. Anthony Kuweri, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, Associate Director of the Clinical Research Phase One Program Director at the University of Southern California, the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center in Los Angeles. Anthony, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks, Gassan, for the great introduction. Welcome, everybody. Um, you know, I think it is quite obvious and we, when we talk about immunotherapy in solid tumors, we are still mostly talking about checkpoint inhibitors that remove the breaks off of, off of the T cells, whether it's through targeting PD-1 or CTLA-4. And both of these pathways have been leveraged in HCC, as we will see. Just as a quick reminder, a reminder that anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 therapy works in the tumor microenvironment by unleashing the potential of the suppressed T cell. Uh, it does require the presence of those activated CD8 positive T cells to be there for it to work. And it requires some level of expression of PDL1 usually also to work. CTLA4 has complementary mechanisms of action to PD1 or PDL1, and in the sense that it primes the T cells usually in the periphery, in the lymph nodes. It expands specific subsets of uh, helper T cells as well that will assist the anti-PD-1 therapy in many ways. So the story of immunotherapy in HCC started with single-agent nivolumab and single-agent pembrolizumab, both which were evaluated in phase 1-2 type studies. And both studies showed consistent results with deep durable responses and single-agent response rates in the range of 15 to 20%, and favorable safety profiles. So that was the impetus to say, okay, well, let's take this to first line with Checkmate 459 and compare nivolumab to sorafenib. And this is a good reminder of why we do phase three studies, right? So in this study, the response rate of nivolumab, 16%, was very consistent with the phase one, two data. However, the median overall survival was not statistically superior to sorafenib. So numerically slightly higher, but did not reach statistical significance. So this was a negative trial, did not show the superiority of nivolumab to sorafenib, which was the original design. But the safety was also consistent, and the uh, PRO, uh, the health, the... Uh, quality of life questionnaires definitely showed that patients who were receiving single-agent nivolumab had superior quality of life for the duration of their therapy, as you see highlighted here. So to summarize, single-agent nivolumab showed durable responses, manageable safety, and the promising survival had been seen in Checkmate 040. However, 459 showed that it did not improve outcomes compared to sorafenib uh, in a statistically significant way. So then the research shifted 
to the assessment of immunotherapy combinations. And of course, the first combination to receive regulatory approval is the combination of atezolizumab, bevacizumab. And this is also based on sound scientific rationale because bevacizumab is known to normalize the tumor vasculature, recruit the CD8-positive T-cells into the tumor microenvironment. It also decreases some of the immunosuppressive cells like MDSCs and Tregs. So it contributes to the anti-cancer immunity of anti-PD-1 or PDL1 therapy. So the phase 3 Imbrave 150 study compared atezobev to sorafenib. The eligibility criteria was typical of advanced HCC studies, so no prior systemic therapy, good performance status. Of note, because of the risk of bleeding with atezolizumab, the study required an endoscopy within six months prior to enrollment. If patients had varices, they were required to have them treated according to local standard. So there is some misinterpretation out there that varices were excluded. They were not. They just had to be treated. Patients were required to have good hematologic and, and, and organ function and CHALP-UA like all of these studies. And the study had co-primary endpoints of PFS and OS. And you can see here that it was positive on both counts. So significant improvement in median overall survival, 19 months with the combination versus 13 months with sorafenib with a hazard ratio of 0.66. The curves separate early, they stay separate, and we, say, we see at 18 months a landmark survival of 52% with atezobev, 40% with sorafenib. Similarly, the PFS was improved with a hazard ratio of 0.65. The response rate by Rhesus 1.1 was 30% for atezobev and 11% for sorafenib. Of note, there was an 88% complete response rate, which prior to this was really unheard of in, in HCC and quite remarkable. And I think the story is very consistent with immunotherapy. When you have a response, it tends to be quite durable. The safety and tolerability of this combination also, basically there were no surprises as far as safety profile. It was as expected for this combination. This is again a review of the response data, which I just showed you. You notice here that there was not a huge difference when looking at Resist 1.1 versus modified Resist. So I think most of these studies now have gravitated back to using mostly Resist 1.1 and iResist. And the responses were durable in both arms. Looking at the safety considerations here, no question that diarrhea and skin toxicity were more common with sorafenib as a class effect. They were much less frequent with the atezobev combination. Hypertension was a class effect related to VEGF therapy and was seen in both arms. And otherwise, again, this was really as expected. There is the box on the right of the slide talking about bleeding events. It's important to note that though with the endoscopy uh, being done on all, on all patients who, uh, prior to enrollment, the grade 3 and 4 bleeding hemorrhage rate was actually quite comparable between the two arms, 6.4 and 5.8%. The all-grade hemorrhage was slightly higher in the BEV arm, but it was mostly epistaxis. Looking at patient-reported outcomes, and this is becoming more and more important now that we have longer survival and multiple lines of therapy, 
you can also see that the uh, time to deterioration was much more delayed with the atezobef combination compared to sorafenib, 11.2 versus 3.6 months. Now, as we get more experience with this combination, uh, it would be great to try and understand what could cause some of the primary and secondary resistance. Uh, this is a publication that came out this year, which is looking at anti-drug antibody levels. Uh, of course, this is one study, uh, and it's hypothesis generating. It probably needs to be validated, but here's the nutshell. There were about 17% of patients who developed a high level of uh, anti-drug antibodies on cycle two, day one, compared to baseline. And you can see that those patients with the ADA high had inferior progression-free survival and overall survival compared to the patients who maintained low levels of or did not develop ADAs. Again, the numbers are relatively small, but there was a, an experiment, a, a test cohort and a validation cohort. So this was, this was well done scientifically, but it was a small population, mostly hepatitis B, all in Asia, so th this needs to be a little, needs to, a little bit more understanding. The other thing, the ideal cutoff of what ADA levels are significant is somewhat arbitrary, and that needs to be studied a bit more as well. But this could explain potentially why some patients may not do as well since not, we don't have a 100% response rate here. The other thing that was unique about this study that made it elegant is they tried to link the levels of ADAs to mechanistic explanations. And there was this inverse relationship between the serum levels of atezolizumab and anti-drug antibodies. So the more antibodies you had, the less uh, serum levels of atezolizumab, and that seemed to also correspond with less T-cell proliferation, less cytokine production in the patients who developed ADAs. So there seems to be a functional relationship as well. Now, as we do in clinical practice, we start using these combinations in larger, well, in, in a population that's more reflective of real life compared to the study population. And this is what was done in AB Real, which was published also this year. Uh, this is a multi-center retrospective study in three continents, uh, looking at patients who received atezobev, and a small fraction of them were not first-line patients. Uh, but the bottom line is that in this real-world uh, setting, Atezobev performed consistently, as we would expect, with a median OS here of almost 16 months for the entire population, including the child pubs so that's meaningful, uh, and not far off from what we saw in the I Am Brave 150 study, uh, and the me median PFS as well. Uh, what's not shown here is for the CHALP-UB cohort, I would still have some caution because even though it looked like the adverse event rate was comparable, this is retrospective, I'm sure there was a lot of selection of those CHALP-UB patients, uh, and, and these were centers with high expertise in HCC, but you would still see that the grade three and four bleeding was higher in the CHALP-UB group compared to the uh, CHALP-UA. So still some caution as far as extrapolating to that population. Let's go to a case now. 
So 60-year-old woman with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and compensated cirrhosis as a result. Presents with right upper quadrant pain, ultrasound shows a liver mass, validated on MRI, which shows a 6.5 centimeters uh, lesion with LIRATS-5, so with arterial enhancement and venous and delayed phase washout in the right lobe, and two satellite nodules, no vascular invasion, no metastatic disease, so still BCLCB, a child PUA, preserved liver function, platelet count 90,000, ECOG of zero. So patient is referred for liver-directed therapy with TACE with the hope to downstage this disease and hopefully make it to transplant. So patient receives TACE, repeat imaging, unfortunately shows that the dominant lesion increased in size and two new lesions appeared as well. Now, because at this point the disease was progressing and some of the new lesions may not have met the LR5 criteria, a biopsy was done, showed HCC, CHALPUA again, uh, but the ALBI grade score went from one to two, which has some prognostic implications. So that gets a little bit concerning because that's a repeating theme across studies. The ALBI2 doesn't perform as well as ALBI1. Still good performance status, AFP goes up a bit, endoscopy confirms treatable varices, so they're small, they get, they get banded. So I'm going to pause here and say, Stacy, what would you do with this patient at yeah. this point? So we're getting a lot of good questions in the chat, and one of them <clears throat> is about how we treat varices. So, um, you know, in my mind, this is a patient that is a good candidate for a TZO-BEV, um, Although they have varices, they're treatable. And, you know, I think the, the discussion is not necessarily, are they a candidate for TZOBEV, but how do you treat the varices, which does differ by institution. I think some places have a preference for banding versus, um, you know, focusing more on beta blockade. But either way, as long as these are treated, the patient should be able to successfully get bevacizumab without an increased risk of bleeding. So for you, is atezobev would be the choice here. Yes. Uh, Ahmed, any reason to do more liver-directed therapy here? No, and this is, you know, very important for us as medical oncologists, especially to a multidisciplinary team here in the room. We always get our, our radiation oncologists and hepatologists, surgeons here. So this is very peculiar setting. Ten years ago, all of us know that th these patients would have been referred back to interventional radiology. But nowadays, with our data, with the combination strategy, showing tolerance and showing a strong signals of efficacy, even up to 30%, response rate, these patients should be subjected to systemic. So we will all argue that multifocal bilobar disease, even without vascular invasion or metastasis, should be unsystemic therapy. So this is a, a very peculiar setting, and we would all use systemic therapy here. I, I fully agree. And, and my other point here would be that the ALBI grade deterioration is also concerning. So if you sit on this patient, it's likely that liver function will deteriorate further with more liver-directed therapy and not have the chance to have systemic treatment. So the patient meets eligibility for systemic therapy. They, they, since they've progressed on liver-directed therapy by definition, they have multifocal disease with high tumor burden and they have preserved liver function. As we said, the esophageal varices are treatable and certainly the combination of tezobev is an appropriate first-line option in this patient with CHALPUA disease. Thank you, Anthony. That was great. And uh, uh, we heard one perspective and uh, 
I will ha be happy to put uh, the further subsequent developments in regard to immunotherapy in the first-line setting. And uh, uh, if anything, uh, it has been really uh, quite fascinating that uh, things evolved in regard to combination therapy. As you see, we're going to talk on the Dervalumab plus Tremelumab plus some other options as well. And that we're going to uh, touch on in regard to what's called the Himalaya study. The Himalaya study is a uh, quite evolved study uh, with about 1,200 patients. Understand with the same criteria, same as uh, Dr. Kowari brought up in regard to the atezolizumab plus bevizumab, which is unresectability disease, BCLC B or C, chart plus score A, not prior systemic therapy, i.e. first line. Patients were originally to be randomized to four arms, one of dervalumab as an NTPDL1 as single agent, another one with dervalumab plus termalumab with four doses of termalumab as NTCTLA4 at a low dose of 75 milligram. The third arm was dervalumab at 1500 mg every four weeks, same uh, dosing, but with termalumab only given once, 300 milligram once only. And then the comparison arm was sorafenib. You'll see that there's an X across the uh, 75 milligram times four of tremlumab because based on data that came from the phase two trial that preceded, we found out that actually the patient with those reduced doses of tremlumab that was given four times did not fare any better than single agent darvalumab and as such we discontinued that arm and carried on with the three arm comparison per se. The primary point, understandably, and it should be, is overall survival. And of course, we look at all the other endpoints as deemed uh, uh, standard. So what did you find here? Uh, this is uh, uh, a study that we proudly presented here first time, literally just last year at the same meeting as today. And uh, uh, it's already published in the New York Journal of Medicine and uh, Evidence and already led to the approval of Dervalumab, Plastimulumab, and Dervalumab. How did you do that? The first arm of this, the first aim of the study was to look at darvalumab plus tremelumab as a combination compared to sorafenib looking for superiority. Is it any better? And yes, we did find that, as you can see over here, the improvement in outcome for the uh, stride, which is the darvalumab plus tremelumab, went up all the way to 16.4 months compared to the sorafenib for 13.7 months. There was another aim of the study was to look into single agent darvalumab compared to sorafenib, but looking for non-inferiority. In other words, trying to see if they are equal in regard to outcome. We already heard from Dr. Kuwari about some of that non-inferiority suggested by prior studies like nivolumab and others. And uh, for that purpose, we looked into anti-PDL1 versus etarsine kinase inhibitor, and we found that yes, it was positive for non-inferiority as well. You can see that the number again is like about 16.6 and same time sorafenib 13.7 still. Very important over here to remember that the numbers have to be understood within the confines of the statistical design that's better, i.e. those two numbers of 16 uh, are not equal uh, because one of them is designed within the superiority component for dervalumab plus tremelumab, while the other for the dervalumab is a non-inferiority number. So I would not really jump on to compare those numbers. And already we have seen, especially as you can see, uh, not only at the median, but beyond the median, there was continuation of the benefit, as you can see in blue, for the dervalumab plus tremelumab, enough that actually at three years, these are no numbers for us in HCC. Three years, 
one third of the patients still alive. So definitely there was quite a bit of impact in regard to the therapy. Now, the other uh, secondary endpoint of the study was the progression-free survival. And as you can see, there's kind of like quite a bit of uh, clinging of all those three curves in the PFS to your extreme right uh, that looks no difference at all. And frankly, there was no difference per se. Actually, why is that? We actually now have better understanding in regard to the checkpoint inhibitors. You remember you are kind of like inviting the immune system of the patient to try to activate against the cancer cells. And this really takes time for priming per se. And you might really miss a point on the PFS and it might not necessarily implicate that per se. Even though we have seen in the atezolizumab plus bevacizumab same improvement in regard to the PFS, but to be fair, despite the improvement, it wasn't really as uh, illustrative as the excellent overall survival that was necessarily there. And this is really, it's not about drugs, it's about the mechanism of action over here, where probably PFS, after all, is not necessarily the primary endpoint for studies that have checkpoint inhibitors in them. Bottom line, we then uh, less than a year, probably it was literally just uh, uh, from tomorrow Friday till this year, one year since we presented that data first time at GIASCO. And uh, if anything, the drugs uh, in regard to the combination were approved by October 21 this year, uh, last year. So uh, what did we see other than that? Uh, no doubt, uh, same as uh, Dr. Alcoeri brought in. Uh, yes, responses were there. There were some complete responses, limited, and I think there was a question in the audience about, like, what do you do in that setting? This is what I call not new adjuvant. This was like cure, <laughs> and we really kind of like get that response. Number two is we had quite a bit of partial responses, and especially for the stride dervalumab, trimalumab, and for the singulation dervalumab, while we did not really fare that much in regard to sorafenib, stability of disease was robustly there, and we've seen probably a little bit more of it in the TKI. And more importantly, despite what I just said about that maybe you need priming of the T cells, but understandably, some of us have cells that are primed already, the median time to response was impressively only two month for the dervalumab plus trimalumab. So within two months, you already have the response that you would expect or anticipate or would like. In regard to adverse events, uh, I have to admit that there's not much to talk about because it was rather very well tolerated, as you can see over here. Yes, in regard to if we were to focus on the grade uh, three and four, uh, less than 5% uh, diarrhea, uh, abdominal pain in 1%, rash in 1%, and at the same time, we can see clearly that uh, this also applied for Dervalumab as single agent as well. Uh, of note, we did not see any bleeding in the study. And of note, we did not scope patients for any uh, varices before uh, eligible, as an eligibility criteria. So there was no scopes required for the patients. By the way, uh, this is a great study. We are happy that we have another option for therapy for patients. We'll come to some discussion and debate about which is which. But nonetheless, to give credit also, there has been other advances in regard to the therapy. And this is mainly data that uh, is relatively new. This all was, was presented in, uh, in Paris at the ESMO uh, last September. And the teslizumab, uh, which is a Quite interesting, in particular, NTPD1 uh, showed non-inferiority to sorafenib. You already know the subject. We said that single-agent NTPD1 and NTPD1 will be probably non-inferior to tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And this uh, nice data presented by Dr. Shin from uh, 
Nanjing in China uh, showed uh, a outcome, as you can see, of overall survival of 15.9 uh, months for the Tislizumab and 14.1 months for Sorafnib. Uh, where we're going to fit in the Tislizumab, we're not really sure yet. There is a certain particularity in biological regard to the FC receptor, but yet it's positive outcome that we are seeing over here. And uh, if anything, we can see here that uh, we have one more time uh, add-on uh, particular uh, novel therapies. And uh, if anything, if there's no contraindication to the checkpoint inhibitors, i.e. no other immune disease per se, we have at least at the moment applicable in the U.S. atezolizumab plus bevacizumab, but with the requirement of the uh, endoscopy for the uh, ruling out the varices and make sure that the varices are treated uh, at least uh, six months. You have the other choice, Dervalimab, Dastralimab. Then, of course, uh, if for whatever reason, and I have to admit that we say that, but we're not really sure really what it means. If you have a patient that's not ideal for the dual therapy, I want to give single agent. Yes, you have the single agent therapies. At least we spoke about two already. We have the Dervalimab. We have the Dislezuzumab. As you know, Dervalimab was pulled out from that indication voluntarily by the company. So it's not really an applicable therapy per se. And of course, if you have a contraindication, you still can use lemvatinib or sorafenib as a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So we'll carry on in regard to the uh, immunotherapy and first-line advanced ACC. And there's one more component that we really need to talk about that also happened at ESMO. And uh, this was the combination of pembrolizumab plus the lymvatinib. And if you recall, this is called the LEAP002 study. Uh, we were all kind of excited about that treatment and came a little bit with rather novel numbers that we are not really used to yet or understand. If anything, it was a negative study. It showed no difference at all between patients who received lymvatinib plus pembrolizumab, as you can see in blue, and for the lymvatinib plus placebo. And the median survival was 21 months for lymvatinib plus pembrolizumab and 19 months for lymvatinib plus placebo. This is a number that we are not used to yet. We kind of like settled to understanding that TKI's median survival is about 13 or so months, and now we're here we're talking about 19 months per se. Interestingly, we can see that also the PFS did not differ between the two arms of the study, about eight months or so. And at the same time, we can see clearly that we had a response rate. Yes, maybe it had improved in regard to the combination of lymvatinib plus the uh, pembrolizumab of 26% versus 17% for the lymvatinib plus placebo. Uh, to be fair, this is still uh, dependent on the abstract format. Uh, we give credit uh, to Dr. Finn who presented the data at ESMO and said clearly that only about a quarter of the patients on the Lymvatin plus placebo did receive a checkpoint in the second line. But I think there are a lot of nuances, to be fair, that we have given a chance to see it in full manuscript format to understand better what are we referring to over here. Of note, at also ESMO, that was a busy ESMO, uh, there was another event called the Camelizumab plus Revisorinib, and this is one more time, it's an NTPD1 plus a NTVGF that also improved survival. That's a little bit interesting now, and we have to dissect that data a little bit more details, because we can see over here that we has a median survival of 22 months. Wow, that's pretty high, and this is, we're happy about that, versus 15 months for Sorafenib. A uh, positive study, no doubt about it, and Dr. Shin again presented it at uh, uh, the ESMO 
in Paris. And the question is, what is going on here? As we know, this was really a uh, uh, study led in China and where the risk factor for the HCC is mainly hepatitis B. Uh, already we have a nuance that we have seen across all the studies that yes, everybody benefit in regard to the use of the checkpoint inhibitor, but maybe to some extent the hep B related HCC patients will fare the most, followed by the hep C, followed by the non-viral. And this is what actually Dr. Coelho referred to in regard to the real AB study that was rather surprising to us because when the evolution of a more real data, as Dr. Coelho mentioned, uh, looked into the atezolizumab plus pefizumab, uh, the percent of the patients with hepatitis B that was in the Ambrave 150, 50% went up to the real kind of contribution that we see in the real world, about 30% so, and the etuzolizumab plus bevizumab mean survival went down to 15.73. Again, it seems clearly that the population will matter, as we can see here with a number that's 22 months because of the happy presence on the study. And by the way, in regard to the adverse events, that's again one more component that we're waiting a little bit more understanding when the manuscript come up, because we're a little bit surprised, despite that we mentioned in regard to the other therapies, for example, the Dervalumab, Trimlumab, where barely there was any adverse events. We can see here there was quite a bit of hepatotoxicity, 33%, 38% or so hypertension, NHN2, 12% in regard to the uh, PP syndrome, and some other components that were a little bit concerning, among which 6.6% hypothyroidism. And I hope you are all checking TFTs as part of the evaluation for the patients as well. Again, we have to really put this in context in regard to waiting for more uh, evaluation and more analysis in part of the manuscript. And by the way, uh, we already kind of referred to the nivolumab plus ipilimumab, and this is the, uh, uh, again, is the study, the Checkmate 90W, looking into first-line therapy for that uh, specific setting, again, with the same eligibility criteria, and we can see that uh, this is a comparison of nivolumab plus ipilimumab to either of the sorafenib or lemvatinib, as they are uh, pretty much equal as we know, because of non-inferiority between them, looking for overall survival. And of course, we're waiting to see more about that data. So back to our patient who actually, uh, Anthony, uh, Dr. Kowery kind of kindly presented to us, the 60-year-old lady, if you recall, that uh, had definition for taste failure. And if anything, the EGD we spoke about, and uh, Dr. Stein brought up the component for us in regard to the EGD necessity and uh, the treatment of the varices. And if anything, we spoke about the therapy per se. Now that you have a little bit of better read on things, the regimen should be considered next is the stradothesical agent TKI. And please, uh, let's make sure that we uh, kind of like engage in a debate over here. It's not like, you know, I like this or I like that, but just kind of like what kind of, you know, scientific argument we bring in one way or the other. And the question is, I'll start with Dr. Kassip. So, is there a role over here for single-agent tyrosine kinase inhibitors? So you would avoid it here because, you know, one of the main reasons we, um, we're worried about, you know, varices with bifacizumab is the fact that antiangiogenesis can lead to bleeding, which is standing even in case of other TKI. The fact that we didn't necessitate EGD within six months for linvatinib or CABO or other studies doesn't mean they're safe. It just means that the study design didn't have that, but we all have treated those patients, so we know the risk 
of any anti-angiogenesis is still there. So for somebody who had confirmed recent bleeding, I would avoid TKIs, I would avoid anti-angiogenesis and stick with immunotherapy. Here, because we, uh, if, let's say we used atezobev, you cannot use any single agent. So here, the only option would be dervatremia, for example, because it's dual checkpoint inhib inhibitors or nevo-AP. But I would use dervatremia because of the um, quality of life and because of the tolerance issues and the phase 3 data. Thank you so much, Dr. Kassab, for that. And Dr. Kouveri, back to you. And in the beginning, you mentioned to us about that we have to make sure that it's the misquote in the study in regard to azuzumab plus bezumab. It's not like absolutely no varices, but treated varices. Mm -hmm. But now here you have a scenario where the patient actually got a bleed. Right. So would then the stride, as Dr. Kassib is suggesting, will come into play or not? No, absolutely. I mean, the, as the, even the study itself excluded patients who had a bleed within six months. Uh, so this would be a contraindication to bevacizumab. Uh, and having level one evidence of superiority of stride to sorafenib really is a fair first-line option. So I, I think it would be a, the, the best option in this case as well because the patient has good performance status, CHALP-UA. Uh, there's no reason to go with single agent in this case. Uh, and... I do think with that tail you showed us, that three-year survival really looks that, that even loading dose or priming dose of CTLA-4 does alter the microenvironment and has a long-lasting effect. So I, I would be in favor of stride here. Fair enough. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Stein, one more component. And to be fair, we added some data that's relatively novel for us in regard to the other combination that came from China. And we saw a little bit of more concerning uh, uh, adverse events, but within the context, at least what we have available to us, what will be your kind of guidance for our colleagues in regard to how to monitor, what to do about the potential adverse events that can occur with dual checkpoint inhibitor therapy? Yeah, so I think, um, <clears throat> you know, we have very good guidelines now for treating immune-related adverse events, and I think the important part to remember is adding that CTLA-4 antibody um, shortens the timeline to these events happening and raises the amplitude. And so to be really thoughtful about checking thyroid function, thinking about when there might be other endocrine issues, really giving them um, that kind of, you know, knowledge of empowering the patient to know when to call and when to call even when something just doesn't seem right, even if they're not sure what's going on, and have that close follow-up because, you know, there's a lot that could happen between the time frame of these, of these treatments. And so I think, you know, with the knowledge that we have, there's very good guidelines for, for treating this, engaging the patient and their family. Um, I, you know, I think we could pretty successfully manage them. But just to remember that the CTLA-4 edition does shorten the timeline and increase the risk. Sure, sure. Absolutely. But uh, again, as we just heard, kind of, you know, uh, close monitoring, taking care of the patients, uh, checking on them, as we now have guidelines for especially the use of checkpointers across the board will be very valuable per se. So with this said, perfect timing. So uh, back to Dr. Stein, uh, who is the Associate Professor of Medicine, Assistant Medical Director of the Clinical Trials Office and leader of the Hepatobiliary Program at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, Stacey is going to tell us about at progression. So tell us what will be yeah. some recommendations. So um, 
So to me, this slide is amazing. You know, we have come so far when, I think when we all started right this, this group of C advanced stage was literally just the word seraphinib. That was it. And now we've expanded the width of it and the depth of it. And hopefully we're really pushing back that time to patients re- reaching that, that terminal stage. You know, so to keep in mind when we think about um, all of these first-line options that we just went over, when the second-line studies were designed, the only approved treatment was serafinib. And so we have some good data in the second line, right? But I think the biggest issue when we finish this is really going to be to discuss what do we do with that data now, given that the first line has changed so much. So um, there's three main studies that, you know, were done post-serafinib um, that were randomized to placebo because there was no, uh, you know, standard second-line therapy. Um, the first is the celestial study that there were some um, third-line patients that have been studied also. And we see after TKI progression with going to another TKI, about a two-month survival benefit with a couple months uh, benefit of progression-free survival. And then in the next study, the resource study, again, regorafenib compared to placebo, um, again, another couple months survival benefit with a short increase in progression-free survival. And then we have the REACH-2 study. So the first REACH study um, did not uh, look at the difference in AFP levels. Patients were randomized to ramucirumab, um, so VEGF inhibition versus placebo, and there was a small survival, there was, well, there was no survival benefit in the REACH study. And then in a subset analysis that was not pre-planned, it seemed that there was a trend toward benefit in the patients with a higher AFP. So in this study, um, only patients with an AFP of greater than 400 enrolled. And then there was a small statistically significant benefit um, in overall survival, small benefit in PFS. And so, um, you know, we'll get to a discussion of really what do we do with this information now that um, we're not just looking at patients post-progression on serafinib. Also important to look at is the Checkmate 040 study that looked at the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab. So this was the standard dose that had um, been shown to be, you know, combinations effective in melanoma, um, of the standard four doses of ipilimumab um, with ongoing nivolumab. Um, and you could see that the overall response rate was about 30% in all three of the arms and a median duration of response um, that, you know, that was really significant. Um, and these numbers were, you know, significantly better than the other um, second-line data that we just looked at. And this was effective in the post-serafinib setting. So um, this is the overall survival of the arm A group. Um, And, you know, for the patients that had um, a complete or partial response, you could see that their survival really was excellent um, in that arm. And, And obviously, you know, there's a decrease in survival for the patients that had only stable disease or especially progressive disease as as best response. And so, you know, if we think about a patient um, 
60-year-old patient with BCLC stage C disease, child PUA disease, now receives frontline atezobev, as many of our patients are, and progresses, right? What, what do we do next, and how do we incorporate this data? Obviously, we can't go back and redo all of these second-line studies, so we have to do what medical oncologists do, which is extrapolate, <laughs> think, think about the mechanisms of action, you know, the individual um, particulars of each patient, but I think this is a great um, you know, discussion question. So what would we do after Tizobev? Dr. Abalfa, do you want to start? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So uh, we have choices. And if anything, after Tizobev, you can read it in two different directions. Because remember, we spoke in first-line therapy about Tizobev, Dervatremi, Limvatinib, Sorafenib. And you can assume that's it. I tried Tizobev, and as such, I need to jump on the second line. However, you know, the assets of TKIs in regard to first line being the lymvatinib or sorafenib are still valuable for the patient. So if anything, we brought up a concept of what we call line minus one, where pretty much we treat the atezobev as being something just went up above the first line therapy or dervatrami, in other words, and then you still benefit from the lymvatinib as first line therapy. And then you jump on after that to the second line choices that you provided like cabozantinib, remesermab, uh, and uh, sura- uh, rigorafenib in case of prior sorafenib. This is one school of thought, and it's not necessarily proven per se. It's more to uh, use and benefit from all the options that are available. But on the other hand, you can really be uh, kind of, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, clear about that. You know what? A second line, I just jump on to cabozantinib, which has been showing the quite a bit of benefit per se. So debatable, but I can see it both ways. Okay, Dr. Alquiri, let's say someone had a good response to a Tizobev, was on treatment for longer than the median duration patients are on. Would that change your decision-making at all on what to give second line? Not necessarily. You know, I, I, I know there's this temptation to try additional immunotherapy, right? So some people say, well, why, why not use nevoipi? Uh, because they benefited from immunotherapy. Why not use Dervatrami, even though it's a first-line regimen or line minus one, whatever you want to call it? Uh, I, I think that's even less proven, right? We're already extrapolating from TKI sequential data that's post-sorafenib. Now to use IO post-IO without really any evidence would be a bit concerning to me. Uh, so I try to avoid that, even though in real practice, sometimes we may bring these options back up down the road, you know, in third and fourth lines for the rare patients who make it that far down. Yeah, I, I ask that to be provocative. I mean, some of the questions I have in my mind about that is, you know, are those patients that eventually progress, right, did they, is, it, is it antibodies that they had, you know, would it mean that it wouldn't work again? Like, right. what's the mechanism? Right? I think there's so much we don't, we don't know. So, Dr. Kiseb, I have a question for you. What if the patient received first-line TKI, which I know we're not doing often now, but, you know, for a good year there, we had a lot of patients on TKIs as first-line as these other combinations started to get approved. And so we were dealing with this situation a lot. What, what has been your Yes, and, and as you said, we have those patients who are still, you know, a couple of years. Have, my record was um, 12 years on sorafenib. So I, I've seen those patients who could go on and on. So, uh, yes, it goes back to the first um, 
um, strategy we discussed here, which is you know evaluating the patient from inside out. So upper endoscopy, if they haven't had one within two years, looking at their liver function status, looking at this kind of discussion, goals of care discussion with them, what is the utmost priority for them? If they really want to look into uh, more of um, aggressive therapy, more of quality of life issues, so, and then you can pick and choose. My practice, if this patient is in good shape, I would do a tezubib after endoscopy. And then, as you know, everybody mentioned here, in terms of how to go from there, um, it really depends on all of these balances, you know, a child PUA versus B, the performance status-wise. There is no evidence-based medicine yet, and we're never going to see those studies. You're not going to see all, any of those sequencing studies. That's why the guidelines are really uh, uh, making sure that we allow patients access to all of them, despite which agent to start with. Yeah, I'd like to add here what Dr. Kasb brought up is a very important point that really the opportunity is to provide access to all those therapies for the patients. To be fair, this is a very dynamic field that really we don't know yet how it's going to settle. Even, for example, basic question like TKI followed by checkpointers or checkpointer followed by TKI, the uh, liver functionality component in regard to HRPB, et cetera, et cetera. And as such, the more you can give patients an opportunity because the add-on of those different therapies is like a relay race. The more you add on, the longer the race is going to be and patient will be doing well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, after first-line Dervatreme, it's very similar after Tizobev. We would often think then about going sure. back to, sure. you know, TKI. So just to kind of sum up, you know, many patients now will be receiving a Tizobev, some patients Dervatreme in first line, and I think then options for second line are, for many of the patients, probably a TKI. There's also the single-agent anti-angiogenic therapy for those patients that are candidates for ramesimumab. And, you know, combination IO therapy, I think that's really an unanswered question of, um, is that a benefit? You know, will it be to a select group of patients, right? We don't really have data for that um, right now. And then for the patients that received first-line TKI, um, you know, we have definitely options. I mean, I think at this point, most of the patients going on first-line therapy with a TKI are often already deemed to not be a candidate for immune therapy, whether they're post-transplant or have a history of autoimmune disorder. So I don't know how often they'll probably go to combination or single-agent IO therapy at this point, but certainly, you know, they have TKIs available to them and um, potentially anti-antigenic therapy. Yeah. So again, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Stein. And this was great uh, first masterclass. So let's carry on to the next one, which is new direction in regard to emerging innovation and advanced intermediate and early stage disease. With this, we're going to introduce uh, our dear colleague and Dr. Ahmed Kasib, who is the endowed professor and director of the Hepatitis Carcinoma Program and member of the NCI Hepatitis Task Force, director of the GI Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson. And Ahmed is going to tell us about the evidence of novel multimodality combinations of HACC. So, um, so my first part of the uh, presentation will tap into uh, integrating local therapy into advanced disease, and then the second part will tap into integrating systemic therapy in early stage disease, uh, in which case we only manage it by surgery or transplant. So um, before that, I, I want to talk about two important pathognomonic features for hepatocellular carcinoma that will help us set the stage for um, understanding those two 
um, uh, intriguing ideas. So the first one is the fact that this is a VEGF-mediated angiogenesis tumor. So tumors are very vascular and arterial phase with the rapid washout, and that's how we diagnose it. And more importantly, this is how we select therapy for HCC. So I always tell my young fellows and young staff that we do TACE and Y90 not because it's uh, HCC, but we do it because of this vascularity, um, um, and to a point where even if you have a, a biopsy-proven HCC tumor but lacks this vascularity, it's a hypovascular tumor, there is no role for intra-arterial therapies, and it's a very poor prognostic indicator. Patients do worse, even unsystemic therapy with antiangiogenesis. The other pathognomonic feature for HCC, which will help us understand the uh, pathogenesis and treatment outcome, is the fact that this is a, an immune-rich um, environment, meaning it's infiltrated by immune cells, but they are all turned off. They are being suppressed. And that's because the liver is an immune-tolerant organ. Um, all of the blood flow from the portal systemic, from the portal circulation passing through the liver to be filtered. So we have the microbes, we have the um, um, uh, diet. So this, therefore, it is a very peculiar setting for immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors. So the first uh, so slide here is tapping into the immune suppressive microenvironment here, and the fact that 70% of uh, those tumors are immune suppressed. And that's also something that could explain why we have reached the glass ceiling with even uh, double uh, agents uh, with immunotherapy up to 30%. And then, and then um, the fact that this is a VEGF mediated. Uh, uh, angiogenesis tumor as well, explained here and uh, puts the rationale for combining anti-angiogenesis with immunotherapy here and uh, tapping into uh, different agents and tapping into different mechanisms of synergy, such as infiltration of T-cells by using the anti-angiogenesis and the synergy effect of priming um, the uh, T-regulatory cells and in expanding on the um, T-effector cells. Um, so, what is the rationale for this intriguing idea of introducing local therapy into management of patients with metastatic disease? So this is it here. The fact that those patients, unlike any other solid tumor patients, uh, they don't die from some metastasis in the bones or lymph nodes. Uh, we don't have a lot of patients with peritoneal metastasis in HCC. This is unlike any other tumor. It's very rare to see brain tumors. They die from liver failure because of progression of intrahepatic tumors. So this is the rationale behind integrating local therapy into management of patients with advanced disease. So this is the rationale for this uh, landmark study that was recently published uh, looking into this patient population, uh, advanced HCC, including metastatic disease. And here, uh, following the rationale we spoke about, those patients still will need systemic therapy in both arms. So you see here linvatinib, um, randomized to linvatinib plus TACE. And this is what we missed in the uh, old era. And by that, I mean the era which was using local therapy alone versus systemic therapy or local alone versus the combo. Here, we have systemic therapy on both arms because patients need it with their advanced disease, and then one arm would be uh, including local therapy. So 
The study showed intriguing results here. So as you can um, see here, the overall survival, 17.8 versus 11.5. Uh, PFS, very impressive, 10.6 versus 6.4. So uh, clearly proving this concept that integrating local therapy into management of advanced disease setting, even metastatic disease, could provide patients with survival advantage because we delay their liver failure uh, incident. And then just a snapshot at you know, the safety um, issues here. And because, you, of course, we had um, the um, patients on the combination arm uh, on the taste, you see here that taste um, uh, common side effects, which, you know, abdominal pain, nausea, fever after taste, uh, you get this uh, post-embolization syndrome sometimes with vomiting, increased ALT, AST, and some anorexia for a few weeks in certain cases, depending on the tumor size. And this is, again, also combined with linvatinib, which could cause some of this. And uh, this is um, um, a couple of slides about um, uh, treated tumor fields. It's an antimetotic therapy. You're going to uh, see a video about this, tapping into how to selectively target the tumor cells while sparing normal cells by focusing on the mitosis, the, this part of the cell cycle, and I let the video explain it. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Transducer arrays can be placed on the scalp, chest, or torso to deliver TT fields that kill cancer cells. The placement of transducer arrays is personalized for each patient. So this is a very peculiar kind of mechanism of action. You're going to see more and more of this with the evolution of the nanotechnology. There is other mechanisms to do injection, nanoparticles at uh, reaching the tumor, and then you heat the uh, outside surface with, uh, with another probe. So all of these things are going to come up to try to focus on the tumor while sparing normal liver. And um, 
This is, you know, the um, uh, sequence, the uh, the use uh, 50, uh, 150 kilohertz, and there is a, a FDA approval uh, for mesothelioma. And there uh, was a study done with the treated tumor fields, uh, that's what TT fields stand for, plus sorafenib, and uh, showed a signal of activity here. And based on this, there is an ongoing effort to start a study with the uh, TT fields plus atezobev. So the next case here is 62-year-old man, and this is a patient with recurrence uh, uh, after surgery, um, presents with a recurrent advanced disease following resection. Patient has two masses, 3 centimeter and 5 centimeter AFP 354. Child Q status is A, ECOG of zero. So what do you think based on uh, what we have presented? Is this patient a candidate for the Invatinib plus taste? Do you think the launch study evidence is sufficient, or do we need uh, more evidence here. So I'm going to start with Stacy and go to Hassan. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, you know, typically for a patient in this setting, we would think about taste alone, right? Would be standard, um, and the data is compelling. I I don't know that it's truly practice changing yet, um, but I think this is the way that we're moving toward introducing probably more systemic therapy, you know, across the spectrum. And we'll talk about adjuvant and neoadjuvant, and and probably there's a, a benefit to doing this. I th I think, um, you know, it's it's hard to know at this point if we should really be switching the care of this large group of patients kind of over based on this one, you know, data set. Yes, you know, thanks so much, Ahmed. I totally, totally concur and I agree with uh, Dr. Stein. Uh, we love the uh, new concepts. We love the new ideas. And by all means, we have to really have an open mind in regard to welcome new studies, as we said, in regard to combination with local therapy, in regard to novelty, as we just saw with the other modality. But to be fair, this is a little bit too early for the clinical practice. At this point in time, we have good components and good suggestions. But as we saw beautifully well in regard to the different trials that we have seen in regard to first and second line therapy, we need phase three trial. We have to have an impact in regard to overall survival. And this really where kind of like sometimes the excitement that we can get from phase two uh, or limited data kind of like really has to kind of, you know, be measured and the, you know, uh, equipoise from what does it imply has to be ultimately measured in an appropriate phase three clinical trial to see where we stand. So I would say great studies, we're not saying no, but a little bit too early. I would say just we need to hold off on our excitement until we see more data. And this is where, if I want to jump to the second part, if you allow me, where other modalities have been considered, there's something very fancy. It's called clinical trials. Mm -hmm. That's really where we need to go. Yes. <laughs> Totally agree. And, you know, this is to avoid the noise of doing both if the patient is candidate only for local therapy. So uh, this is different from a patient with metastatic disease, has been on systemic therapy, and now has got only 
one centimeter new lesion and this tolerating the treatment well so all of us would agree here in this case you can do ablation and continue for example oligoprogression so you really have to differentiate between these two because sometimes at multidisciplinary teams people get excited a patient candidate for taste one single tumor and then the surgeon would ask you to do systemic therapy as well to shrink the tumor and take him to so you really have to be careful to sequence your therapy in a, 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 a systematic manner and reliance and clinical trials um, so this is uh, perfect for our audience here, and it's a multidisciplinary audience that we have tonight. All right, moving on. So this is um, uh, uh, fresh out of the oven. A few months ago, this study was long-awaited, you know, so was um, SBRT, uh, radiation therapy, steady tactic, um, plus serafinib, randomized to serafinib alone. It took a long time to finish, and we all know this because we're all part of it. But then it showed uh, this improvement in um, survival here. You see uh, six, almost 16 months versus 12 months. So this is a proof of concept that you can combine. But as Gassan said, this, you have to follow what the clinical trial entry criteria were. This study actually necessitated also some vascular invasion uh, patients and so on. So it was advanced. It was not a clear cut single tumor amenable for definitive intent radiation and the added sorafenib. So we also have to look at, and we're all used to this. This audience is very sophisticated. All right, and moving on, I uh, discussed the uh, integrating systemic um, uh, therapy into early and in intermediate stage disease. We talked about this briefly, which is rational for combining local regional treatment and systemic therapy. So for intermediate stage, this is, you know, a very peculiar setting, which is very heterogeneous, right? So intermediate stage could be patients like what we discussed, two, two, two tumors, three, three and five centimeters, could be innumerable tumors that you could see and the radiologist would not be able to count them, could be um, uh, patients with advanced um, child pew status. So all of these patients, you really have to uh, personalize your approach for them. So the effect here is really peculiar and um, um, related to the tumor burden of the disease here and which local therapy you're going to use is directly dependent on the tumor burden very selectively for example for ablation up to three or five centimeters and uh, for y90 you can do larger tumors than taste so these are the classic concepts for cho choosing the local therapy so uh, systemic therapy has got level one evidence here of improving survival in hcc uh, and this is not something that you find in any other, even surgery, because of course you cannot randomize to placebo here. So there is very strong rationale to using systemic therapy um, because of this level one evidence and the potential advantage to incorporating it early on is that you can start earlier, patients have, uh, will have good performance status, good liver function status, and there is more effective intervention prior to possible liver decompensation with repeat localized therapies, and potentially you can increase the chances of cure by offering these patients downsizing that could lead to resection or transplant. So there is a very, very strong rationale here uh, for this setting. And this is, these are some criteria here that were developed recently to look into um, prognostic scoring system for taste. Um, and they're very, very Classic, you know, so number one, good liver function status defined by child pew A or very, very early B, no um, history of tumor rupture, no GI bleeding, no ascites, no jaundice, um, so PS of zero. So patients, have, they have to be in excellent shape. Uh, and these criteria were validated multiple times. And the median overall survival was really dependent on the combination of this scoring system, and which makes perfect sense because, you know, localized therapy 
therapies, you really need to have good liver function status and you need to, you need to have, even in B7, you'll notice here, even if it is B7, you have no ascites in other scoring systems, no encephalopathy, for example. So just B7, maybe because of, of uh, albumin of uh, 3.1, for example. So they have to have excellent liver function status. And then for all BCLCB intermediate stage uh, patients, we talked about this, that this is a very heterogeneous group here. And it goes from, you know, single uh, mass to innumerable tumors here and bilobar disease. So that's why you really have to be very selective. And those scoring systems established uh, certain guidelines in patients, such as the number of lesions that will be treated with localized therapy, the size of the lesions, uh, the multifocality is very important, three, what the kind of the magic number uh, for between uh, different um, um, studies and the size-wise as well, uh, six centimeter was established as the size of choice, you know, to be able to do uh, a taste procedure. Actually, if you look at the early study that approved taste in 2002, the average tumor size was five centimeter in one study, seven in another study, but people started doing it for all tumor sizes, and you start seeing the post-embolization syndrome for 15 centimeter tumor getting taste, while the two earlier studies were much smaller. So, in terms of systemic therapy versus TAS, this is the uh, early effort that I mentioned before that, you know, people were looking into TAS versus uh, systemic therapy. Inclusion criteria posed major, major issues there. Uh, study enrollments were very, very, very slow. We all participated in those studies early on. So this is uh, linvatinib versus TAS here and um, showed uh, some significant survival in, in both arms and the p-value was uh, 0.2. Ongoing studies here, uh, uh, notable to be mentioned, atezobev versus TACE in intermediate stage, rigorafenib uh, plus nevo versus TACE in intermediate stage. But again, these studies, if you look carefully at their inclusion-exclusion criteria, they will be very specific to limit the study entry to patients with small volume disease because those patients could end up with TACE alone. So you cannot have somebody here with bilobar disease, you cannot have somebody who's not tasteable. And there are other studies that were um, uh, done before in the era of serafinib, brevinib, and those are the studies that were uh, done with taste plus systemic therapy, and they were mostly done in an adjuvant kind of setting. So, um, so patients will get taste, and then a month later, you can start systemic. So it was a different kind of sequencing as well. And that's why we really didn't end up with any survival advantage or any meaningful clinical outcome in this era. The next wave here is localized therapies plus immunotherapy. We talked about the rationale for this and why immuno, uh, immune microenvironment is one of the two pathognomonic features for HCC, and there is a very strong rationale to adapt, adapting this in terms of combining it with localized therapies here. And you uh, uh, most likely heard about the episcopal effect here, that the localized therapy would induce tissue injury, new antigen formation, and this by itself can induce systemic inflammatory response to mobilize and expand on T effector cells. So there is very strong rationale. This study here was a proof of concept uh, looking into uh, local regional therapy plus immunotherapy was uh, trimilimumab plus uh, ablation and showed the proof of concept here. Ongoing studies here, we're waiting on uh, the Emerald 1, Derva, uh, plus or minus BEV plus TASE versus TASE uh, and placebo, pimperulinvatinib plus TASE versus TASE and placebo, NEVO plus 
taste versus taste alone, nivo um, plus or minus APN taste versus taste and placebo, nivo AP Cabo, Tezobev um, with Y90, Dervatremi with Y90, and Dervatremi with Deb taste. So we're really at a very exciting time point here when it comes to HCC and immunotherapy after immunotherapy um, has been validated to be um, effective and tolerable agent in HCC and knowing what the local therapy can do to the micro environment to turn it into an advantageous and favorable environment for the use of immunotherapy. And uh, a demand trial here that uh, will be assessing a TESO plus BEV before or combined with taste and intermediate stage HCC is being launched, taking the advantage of the preferred, you know, regimen, which is a TESO BEV at this point and the high response rate and so on to look into this in uh, patients with intermediate stage disease. And this is the Emerald One uh, taste in combination with Derva plus BEV in patients with localized disease and uh, randomized to taste Derva and taste alone. And um, the study, uh, and this is the inclusion and exclusion criteria here, um, not amenable for curative uh, child PUA, ECOG 0 to 1, no evidence of extrahepatic disease, and we talked about the adequate functions. So next is patients with resectable disease here, and that's another very, very intriguing and stimulating idea, which basically looking into um, uh, resection uh, in patients with resectable disease, how can we integrate systemic therapy? And here it's very straightforward, either a new adjuvant or adjuvant strategy. The rationale here is very straightforward because most of these patients end up with recurrent disease because the underlying um, uh, liver disease, we know the background defect in the liver and therefore um, most of the patients end up with um, um, uh, recurrent disease and uh, survival advantage here to offering new adjuvant or adjuvant could really change um, uh, the way we manage those patients. So in terms of uh, recurrence, it was um, reported to be 70 to 80 percent uh, in five years, and uh, we haven't had any proven or approved adjuvant therapy yet, uh, or even new adjuvant therapy. There is a very strong correlation here between the nodularity, the size of the tumor, um, the margin of the tumor, and these are all classic with all solid tumors, as we know, and they're panning out here as well. So there is a very direct relationship between the high-risk features and recurrence. Adjuvant sorafenib turned out to be negative. However, there was some trend in patients with high-risk features. That's how we learned how to address the high-risk features, and those patients were selected in subsequent adjuvant studies at the patient population of interest based on the tumor differentiation, based on the microvascular invasion, based on the nodularity and the size. So moving TKIs to earlier stage disease has got very strong rationale, and that's the other pathognomonic feature I mentioned, which is the tumor being driven by uh, VEGF-mediated angiogenesis. So there is very strong rationale here uh, in using anti-angiogenesis for these tumors because of the vascularity that affects um, the, uh, the tumor recurrence rate, uh, the vascularity that affects even response to immunotherapy, that affects the uh, uh, tumor uh, immunity response and balance between T effector and T regulatory cells. So these are the emerging adjuvant studies in HCC, NIVO versus placebo, PIMPRO versus placebo, DERVABEV, uh, versus placebo, and then we atezobev versus active surveillance. There was a press release that the study met its primary endpoint. We're waiting for the uh, more details to come out. 
And this is um, emerald 2 adjuvant derva-based therapy uh, for HCC with high risk for recurrence. And as I mentioned, it depends on the tumor size and number and differentiation. And this is the atezobev scheme, um, atezobev uh, as adjuvant therapy versus uh, just active surveillance. And in terms of the um, new adjuvant perioperative space, this is a study that we published recently looking into um, randomizing NEVO versus NEVO AP uh, patients to either NEVO or NEVO AP pre-surgery and looking into uh, doing the six weeks therapy um, uh, prior to therapy, get, obtaining tissue and blood immune profiling and then at time of surgery, this is the second point and comparing before and after therapy. And it was very peculiar uh, setting to test. It's a window of opportunity study where you can really study correlatives of response. And the common suspects were really what we discussed earlier, the balance between T effector cells, the tumor-specific uh, CD8, CD4 cells uh, between the, these cells and T regulatory inhibitory cells. So this balance really dictated the outcome. So those patients who started with favorable outcome did well. Those patients who started with unfavorable balance, and then at time of surgery, because of the immunotherapy, this ratio was reversed, and they had higher ratio expansion of T effector cells. They also had maximum response. So six out of 20 patients had major pathologic response. None of them recurred, while the other 14 patients, 50% uh, of them recurred. And along the same line, the adjuvant CABO plus NEVO study done at Hopkins, and this study was conducted in 15 patients. 12 of them ended up with successful um, margin-negative resection, and four had major pathologic response defined uh, by 90% or more of tumor necrosis, and one had complete CR. And this is a new adjuvant study um, uh, for atezobev um, in um, new adjuvant setting. We were conducting this study to look into the, uh, uh, the addition of uh, anti-angiogenesis 2, anti-PDL1, so immunotherapy plus the two pathognomonic features we discussed and evaluating this in a pilot fashion, uh, just like what we showed before to look into correlatives of outcome. And when it comes to transplantation for HCC, so... This is a curative setting here, and it goes back to 1996 for our young investigators and fellows here. And at that time, it was very limited to what we, we used to and still uh, named as Milan criteria. So it was done in uh, Milan, and they uh, actually did a retrospective study of about 49 patients, and then they looked at those patients who were still alive after four years and uh, did well, and the recurrence was less than 10%. So these were the criteria. One tumor up to five centimeters, three less than three centimeters with no vascular invasion or metastasis. And then it was validated multiple times. And then other centers tried to expand on it, UCSF, for example. So it's always a balance between what you can achieve, you know, in terms of the number of tumors and the size, and also some centers are using alpha fetoprotein as well. Um, some centers are using PET scan. The whole idea is to look into a biologic evaluation of the tumor. So testing the tumor biology, whether it's by the old criteria, looking only at the size, and the UNOS you know, criteria here in the U.S. goes by the size, maximum three centimeters, and UCSF is the maximum we use in the U.S., but more centers are now involved with more assessment of the biology with PET scan, alpha fetoprotein, for example, to kind of dig deep there. And very few centers transplant any patient with alpha fetoprotein more than a thousand because it's an indication of even micrometastasis there. So unspoken rules, I'm sure you guys are all heard of it, is just indicative of the worry about the tumor biology and the recurrence after transplant. 
So there is a peculiar study here ongoing dervaplastremi for HCC patients listed for liver transplant. And um, that's why it is we put this slide because we have to understand this is a clinical trial setting. Again, at the tumor board, you might be pushed a little bit, especially if a young, you know, clinician by the transplant surgeon and asking you to give a tezobev or something else. And then guess what? You know, this patient gets, you know, in, in line um, um, in next month for liver transplant. And then there is, you know, some report about the rejection and and it's really really a very dangerous situation so you have to stick with the as you know as San was saying you know evidence-based medicine these patients are excellent for clinical trial investigations and even this study there are some safety barriers there so those patients they cannot be within three months of transplant so there are some uh, imposed you know uh, wait time now six months by the units so they have very very strict guidelines to go with so to avoid the issue of patients getting transplant while they still have in their system some immunotherapy and it is not cleared yet from their system. So it has to be at least 90 days between last dose of immunotherapy and transplant. So this is uh, our case here. A patient um, who was found to have extensive microvascular invasion at resection. So you got the report, a 50-year-old man with hep C cirrhosis um, and um, had a unifocal HCC 7.5 centimeter with no uh, vascular invasion and imaging child PUA um, and um, uh, completely counter normal, underwent resection and was found to have extensive microvascular invasion and moderate to poorly differentiated HCC. So so question to Stacey and Dengasan, how would you manage this patient? Uh, would you use adjuvant therapy or local regional therapy at this point? And would you even consider immunotherapy? So this is a really good question, and it comes up not infrequently at tumor board. Um, I think this is a problem that, you know, surgery alone, you often have a bad feeling when you get back this pathology. You're very concerned the patient is going to recur. I think, though, again, the question is, do we have randomized data to say that we know that doing adjuvant therapy at this point is going to make a difference? And, you know, we know that serafinib does not make a difference in the adjuvant setting. We have a bunch of ongoing studies. Um, there is, I think, going to be some data tomorrow uh, of some adjuvant data, but we really don't know yet that that we should be giving adjuvant therapy or what the right what the right treatment is. So, you know, I hope that in not a long amount of time, right, we'll have better data from some of these studies that completed that'll really help guide this because I think um, you know, we all hope that some of these studies are going to show a benefit, right? That's really going to help these patients. I think you could even argue looking at this that hopefully neoadjuvant data would help drive what to do with these patients, right? Like most other cancers, when you know that someone is going to have a resection like this, you hope that you could give them more effective systemic therapy before their surgery. But, you know, right now, I, I, I don't think we have enough data to, to give them therapy at that time. You know, I totally concur. And uh, we have to be really, I'd say, patient until we have data. And intriguingly, uh, since we prepared the program, and uh, if any of you follow the news, actually there was a press release early morning. It's like almost about 19 hours since it was released in Basel in, uh, in Switzerland that the Ambrave 050, which uh, we just heard about at Izubav, is reported to be positive. 
but we don't know more than that. You can look into your uh, whatever channel you connect your data. Uh, so at least we see. Uh, we of course we have to wait until we see what the what it is about. They said that uh, we didn't have yet a, a, a maturity in regard to the uh, survival. They have to wait for the next analysis. But they are uh, uh, happy about what they saw so far. And this was in the press release. Uh, we're going to continue to evolve in information of that nature. The good news is that, as Dr. Kasip said, there is plenty of clinical trials that are available and or at least uh, collected already the number of uh, patients on to kind of understand those components. But please, please, we all urge you, and you're hearing it from all three of us in different ways, we would not just throw in any therapy just because we feel that adjuvant therapy is appropriate because we don't know. And as we know, there has been experiments where not necessarily the adjuvant therapy will do the right uh, uh, appropriate intervention per se for patients. So we have to be patient. We kind of explain to the patients, unfortunately, we don't have any better than watchful waiting until we see better data for that regard. But, but close imaging. Yeah, yes. close imaging, of course. Right. I can summarize that continued advances in combination <laughs> therapy with anti-PD-1, anti-PD-1 therapy as a scaffolding for the therapy is very much needed. We know very much about the alteration got to the immune activity at the time of the local treatments. A thorough analysis in the context of the study-specific demographics is very much needed, and we spoke about this quite a bit, and we gave some examples. Sequential therapy is an evolving field, and maximizing the options in regard to uh, the patients is an obligation, as Dr. Stein also referred to. Combination therapy evolution is underway, so it's not like we're done. It's a dynamic field, and we have to just wait and new information is evolving. And that's really why the same way we do it with other diseases, please, very important not to stick to that set. This is the only thing I'm using. We have to really be open in regard to other options. Same time, whatever we discover about the current options we have. And of course, the integration of the systemic therapy into earlier stage disease is evolving as well. Interestingly, we're starting to understand that HCC is like a two-way street kind of in regard to staging where you can really look at systemic therapy for local disease. At the same time, downstaging, as many of you have asked through the questions, will definitely be an important component. Uh, we have a lot of questions. I will be checking with uh, Peerview how we can probably promise you at least some responses because some of them are very valuable. And I'm going to at least pick up two questions and try to kind of, you know, put some input from my colleagues on the podium. And the first one is in regard to the issue of the uh, ADA. Uh, and the question is, uh, do you think it's a good idea to check for ADA if I want to give atezuzumab, bevizumab, uh, thoughts? Ahmed? So, so there are, you know, some reports about, you know, the high incidence of EDAs and uh, especially atezolizumab more than others, but this doesn't rise to the evidence-based medicine yet for us to guide our therapy decisions in clinic based on it. So I would say it goes back to our basic concept, and this is, you know, ask GI, it's all about clinical trials. So we just have to wait for more data to come out. We're not there yet where you can really guide your decision based on the ADA, but it is an active area of research in all the clinical trials going forward. Yeah. No, by total me, by all means. Interestingly, and this is really where we're not really fully clear on the story, but the first time it featured in regard to the HCC with the atezolizumab was actually in the package insert by the FDA, where it very clearly says that patients who really have the anti-drug antibody, they will not fare as good on the study as we just heard a little bit earlier 
uh, in regard to that later uh, recent data from Dr. Kim and colleagues. Interestingly, the other component that, however, a little bit more of concern is that based on the data we know, and this is part of the Embrave 150, this was reported at ACR last uh, in 2021, the percentage of patients who have anti-drug antibody positive is rather high, 30%. And that's why, in other words, you really bring up the question, what shall we do about that? And I kind of would say you can look at it in different ways. Is there an obligation to tell the patient about maybe this chance? Is it really something that you're ready to take a risk on? But of course, as Dr. Kassib, we don't have the testing for that purpose. With this said, another question, and this came twice, uh, and for Dr. Stein. So a patient with sharp UB, what's your standard at here? Uh, I feel like that is always the most asked question of what do we do? It was. You know, with child UB, right, and there were a lot of questions, and and there's good reason for it because every study only represents child PUA patients, and yet the majority of the patients we see um, in reality are child PUB. You know, fortunately, we do have some data in child PUB with different drugs where there's been, um, you know, real-world data collected. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of experience with, with giving these drugs um, to a lot of different patients. You know, on the other hand, child PUB is not just one you know, definition, right? There's a huge range yeah. of patients, not just B789, but also um, a sense of whether they're stable where they are in that B status or they're, you know, actively declining from one number to another. We often still go through the algorithm in a very similar way for the child PB patients, but, you know, have to acknowledge that potentially, right, the risk of adverse events is going to be higher in this group, that they will probably need more active management, probably be good for them to also be regular seeing a hepatologist. And, um, but, you know, there's still potentially candidates for TZOBEV. We have published data now looking at, um, you know, a cohort of child PB patients that, that were treated. Um, we have that data in TKIs. But it's hard because I don't think we're ever going to see randomized phase three study in child PUB patients, right? So we have to, to some degree, extrapolate. We have to share that data that we have from our institutions. We have to be able to show that, you know, that it's safe to give. But certainly it's not the same experience in treating those patients, but I strongly feel that most of them can be treated with multiple lines of systemic therapy with extra management. No, by all means. And to be fair, we have some data in regard to checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, there's data in regard to nivolumab, in regard to CHARP-UB patients B7 and 8. We have also some data in regard to sorafenib, which is very well studied in that regard. But I agree with Dr. Stein. We need a little bit further data. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NNK 860. This educational activity is supported by independent medical education grants from AstraZeneca, AZI Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Novocure Incorporated.